Good morning once again. If you could please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. That will be our sermon text for this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that we could come here and look into your word and look to you, the one who is working in our lives, the one who is working all across this world. And so we look to you, God. You are ever exceeding joy in whom we delight. Please help us and bless us this morning. Please help me as I preach. Make my tongue the pen of a ready writer to confess the beauties and the wonders of our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, it's been since July since I preached, so I'm particularly excited or nervous, depending on how you look at it. Um, the Puritans were known because they would grab a single verse and then write entire books on them. Sometimes entire sermon series on just a single verse, and they would do it very well. Uh, today, we will try to look at just one verse. As a matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, Ethan did that. He looked at one verse. Really, we're only going to look at half a verse, all right? Because we're competing. <laughs> we're not. I tried to write it on just the one verse, but there was so much that I had to split it into two sermons. And so this week, we're going to be looking at most of verse one. And next week, we're going to be looking at verses one through three. Okay. And what better theme, what better spot to stop and think and reflect than that of joy? Philippians, out of all the epistles that Paul wrote, it seems to be his closest one, his most intimate. You get a look into his internal life, his external pressures, his longing for the church. He constantly writes to his friends. And even in the verse today, you see that. He says, finally, my brothers... In other letters, he rebukes them. Sometimes he doesn't even say hello. If you look at Galatians, he just says, hi, let's get down to business. It's not the case with Philippians. He stops and he thinks as he's in prison and he writes to his friends. What other letters do in an entire section or chapter, Philippians sometimes only gets that in a single verse. Philippians has one of the most beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is in the entire Bible in three verses. That's why we're looking at this letter today. All scripture is breathed out by God. And today, we're going to focus on one verse. The verse talks about one of the main themes of Philippians and one of the main themes of all of scripture, joy. And we're gonna talk about it in three movements. And in hoping to talk about it this way, just so we can understand and see that we as Christians are a people of joy in Jesus Christ. The three movements are the obstacles and opponents, the command of joy, and the source of joy. So first, let's look at verse one, because that's the only one we're looking at today. But let's look at the first word, finally. Finally here, and it may be missed out, implies a transition. 
Paul is transitioning from describing the obstacles that the Philippians have, set, have faced, so it's important to pause and reflect on what those obstacles are. He not only talks about their obstacles, but his obstacles. Since we haven't been in Philippians in a while, I am going to read them. First, in Philippians 1, verses 17 through 18, Paul says, Some proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here, Paul is talking about his own obstacles with other Christians who are preaching Christ, but they are doing it out of a selfish motive. The rebuke for them is not because they're preaching the wrong thing, but out of the wrong heart. He's going to rebuke the wrong thing later, but here he's rebuking the wrong motive. And even in the midst of that obstacle, as the apostle is in prison, possibly waiting his death sentence, he reminds them to rejoice. In Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28, he switches from his obstacles to theirs, and he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. That statement pushes along the rest of what he talks about at the end of chapter 1 and of chapter 2. The opponents and obstacles that Christians face in Philippi. And then again, he talks about all of those obstacles. Not only external pressures, but internal tensions and divisions that could come into the church. And brings them back down in Philippians 2, verses 17 through 18, when he begins to talk about himself after again, talking about the humility of Christ that should unite them as Christians, and he says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And that is not even all of the times that joy and rejoicing is mentioned in the scriptures. And not even in Philippians, there's more. After what we look at today, after verse 1, Paul begins to talk about, in verses 2 through 3, about those who come and affect their sound doctrine. Those who, by false teaching, are trying to dissuade them from the gospel of Christ and trying to draw them to himself. And Paul goes on another description on the importance of what we believe, but to transition from the obstacles that they face and the false doctrine which they will face, he says, finally. That's what connects them. What connects chapter 1 and 2 to the issues addressed in chapter 3 is this verse. It helps connect the letter. And one thing becomes clear. Paul and the Philippians face obstacles. Constantly throughout the letter, issues and oppositions by persecutions, by internal divisions, by false teachers, by despair, by bitterness, rear their ugly head. The Bible does not shy away from describing the difficulties of life. Rather, as we see here, the Bible deals with reality. It sees things fully. The reality of the obstacles is seen in this verse after the command, not just before. The phrase that follows, and that will be the only phrase, that's as far as we're going to get today, okay? To write the same things to you. 
There is a lot of argument. If you were to sit down and pull up a series of commentaries on Philippians on what he means by the same things. The reason is because he says to write the same things to you is no trouble for me. But he doesn't repeat anything. He doesn't say the exact same thing in chapter 3. Okay? There's no repetition exactly of what he's writing. So people began to speculate. And they gave us three options. The first option, they say, is that there's a letter missing from Paul in which he gives them a command to be careful about the Judaizers, which we're going to talk about next week. And you're excited. Next week. Okay? The false teachers that are coming, he writes to them and says, watch out for these people. So here, when he's saying to write the same things to you is no trouble, he's referencing a letter that we don't have. And although that may well be possible, we don't have that letter. It's all speculation. So there's a second option. It could be said that Paul, in his ministry to the Philippians, constantly reminded them of sound doctrine and watching out for false teachers that can come and corrupt their faith. But again, it's speaking of things that we don't know about. And the third option, which if you can't tell that I'm biased, is the one that I prefer, is that when Paul is writing about the same things to them, he's relating it to the command to rejoice. The reason that that's difficult is because for him to command them to rejoice is a security for them. That's what he says in that verse. If writing the same things to you is no troublesome to me, but it is safe for you. And that is what we're going to talk about next week. This is why I had to split up the sermon. But if the command to rejoice is being repeated often in the letter, here, the same thing which he is reminding them is no trouble for him to repeat. Before he talks to them about other issues they face, both in those who want to corrupt their teaching and character, but also the obstacles they will face before they reach the final home, he reminds them again to rejoice. If we take the reading then to mean that the same things he writes to them is constantly reminding them to rejoice, then what is implied here by both finally and the same things is that they are to rejoice in the midst of obstacles and the difficulties that they face in their life. There are real things in their lives which want to steal their joy. And the encouragement of the apostle is that in the midst of those things to be constantly reminded to rejoice. There is a certain awareness of reality in the Bible. The Bible understands life, and here we see it. There are things in life which threaten to steal our joy. Life, as Scripture recognizes, has many obstacles and oppositions. We as Christians and Christians throughout the ages and across this world always face oppositions and obstacles. It is the fact of living in a sinful world and dealing with difficult things. It can either be the turbulence of government, disease, problems with money, or with opinion. It can either be that there are things that are beyond our control, and as those circumstances swell up, we are tempted to despair. There are things in life which threaten to rob us of our joy subjectively, and we, like them, need the reminder of the same things. That although we may spend time, and rightfully so, recognizing those things which are difficult and painful, 
The responsibility and the calling of the Christian is to remember the same things. The Bible deals with reality. It recognizes pain and it recognizes joy. To remember the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. To remember the joy that we have in the Lord. Obstacles come and there are many. But beloved brothers and sisters, let us remember the same things. Let us repeat them to ourselves and to each other. This should not be troublesome for us, but should encourage us in the midst of the obstacles of life. At the same time, it is good for us to not pretend that there are no problems. The Bible deals with reality. It is inappropriate to pretend like there are no issues in life in the world. The Bible is real and it deals with real things. Paul, the seasoned apostle, knows this and points his readers and us to the truth found in joy. And that's what we'll discuss in the next point. This verse here is a command to rejoice. It says, rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say you can rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't say it's a good idea to rejoice in the Lord. It implies that, but it says rejoice in the Lord. Some have taken this command to mean that you can never feel sad because you're commanded to rejoice. So if you feel sad and you're not rejoicing, are you sinning? Some have taken this to mean that you can only feel happiness and any feeling of sorrow would be a sin. But the Bible deals with reality and it also deals with the reality of sorrow. In 2 Corinthians, as the aged apostle writes to his most difficult church, he says, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Both can be true. Paul talked about the sorrows that he had, even in this letter. So, if the command is not a rebuke of all sorrow, what is it commanding us to do? And this is where I'm going to dork out a little bit, okay? A command in the original language of the New Testament is usually referred to as an imperative, right? This is something you have to do. And there are different ways that in the original language the type of imperative is described. One of the ways a command can be understood is this, that you have to do something in the future. For example, Matthew 4.10 says, you shall worship the Lord and serve him only. That's a command. The emphasis being the action and the action happening in the future. But this type of command primarily happens in Matthew once in 1 Peter, and it's usually a reference to the Old Testament. So if we were to take the command to rejoice here in that way, it would mean you shall have joy. But that's not what Philippians 3.1 is saying. Is there a promise of future joy in the Christian life? Absolutely. But that's not what this verse is saying. So a command in scripture can also have the idea to communicate both urgency and the necessity to begin an action. For example, John 19, 6 says this, crucify him, crucify him. That's a command. The crowd wanted to crucify Jesus immediately. It is about beginning the action now. It's on beginning and continuing the action. It is also referencing a specific action. That means that if we were to take the command to rejoice in that way, it would mean rejoice now. Are you sad? Just smile. Are you having problems? Don't. Rejoice. (laughs) But that's not what's being used here. 
don't misunderstand. We're called to real and tangible moments of joy in the Christian life. For example, uh, the Psalms talk about delighting in the Lord. That's a very real thing. But that is not what is being talked about in this specific verse. There's a passage in James that says, consider it all joy, brothers, when you face trials and difficulties of various kinds. That is about beginning and continuing an action. But the command isn't to joy, it's to consider. When obstacles come, the action that you begin is to consider it a joy. So if that's not the command here in Philippians 3.1, which is related but not the same thing, what is it? Okay. The commands in scripture can also carry what's referred to as a solemnity. For example, in John 15, 4, Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul writing to Timothy says, preach the word. In those cases, the command is not about beginning or continuing an action, but rather the priority of the action. That would mean that the priority of a Christian in the midst of obstacles should be to seek joy. So if you don't experience joy in the midst of obstacles, that means your priorities aren't in the right place. But is that what this is saying? What happens when we have a long season of sadness and difficulty? Are we sinning then? Are our priorities out of place? Always? Is all sorrow a result of inappropriate priorities? That is not what this command is saying. And although joy has an importance in the Christian life, the first miracle of our Lord was turning water into wine, signifying the joy that he brought into the world. That is not what this command is specifically talking about. So what is being said? Am I going to answer the question? I am. Right. The dorkiness is fading away. It's not meant to communicate any of these. It, it's meant to denote something to do with custom and attitude. It is a command that is meant to emphasize character and identity. For example, this sort of command is used in Luke 6, 35, when Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good. It's used in Ephesians 5, 2, when Paul writes, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The command is not about the future, it is not about beginning or continuing an action. It is not a command that is meant to emphasize urgency and priority. The command here is meant to emphasize character. When Paul tells them to rejoice, what he is saying is that they should be the sort of people whose character is one of joy. Not just in a specific situation, but in all situations. They are defined as the people and the custom of joy. A summary of that thought amazingly comes well from a Puritan named Stephen Sharnock when he writes, our understanding must take pleasure in knowing him, our wills delightfully embrace him, and our actions be cheerfully squared to him. It is not just our minds or our hearts and emotions and our wills and our actions, but the whole of our being given over to joy. Another pastor put it like this, joy is the inner quality of delight in God. And that's what I think is meant here by Paul commanding them to be a people of joy. The whole of our lives is one of joy and delighting in the Lord. 
We are marked and defined as the people of joy. He is reminding them of the objective truth of the joy in the midst of the subjective reality of the circumstances and difficulties. He is neither, Paul reminds them, crushed by obstacles or tempted by pleasure. The Bible constantly reminds us to be a people of joy. The delight that we have in the Lord, which permeates all of our lives, not only our thoughts, but our wills and our actions, the whole of ourselves given over to joy. And where does this identity come from? It's the second part of that verse. It says, rejoice in the Lord. There can be two emphasis in the Lord, but the language that Paul always uses to remind us that we're in Christ, it could mean that Paul is telling them rejoice in the Lord as the object of our joy, which the Psalms talk about. When you think about the Lord, when you think about the things that he has done, when you read his word, there is delight in praying to him and being drawn near to him. There is also in the Lord could mean in the incorporative sense, which means this, you can rejoice because of the Lord, because you are united to the Lord, because you are in God and are the people who are in God, what overflows from you is an experience of such joy. The apostle is never far from reminding his readers that they are in Christ, that their source of joy is found in Christ alone. And I think the natural sense of this text then takes an emphasis that because we are in Christ, we are also able to rejoice in Christ. That because we are in Jesus, we can rejoice in Jesus. That the Lord is our delight. Since logic would dictate that only those who are in the Lord are able to deeply rejoice in God's character and goodness since they have the deepest expression of that experience found in Jesus Christ. The emphasis, however, being clear that the call of the apostle is that our joy is closely tied to being filled with Christ. They go hand in hand. That instead of dwelling on the obstacles and the oppositions, as they consider the Lord, what will naturally overflow is joy. In the midst of the obstacles of life, the reason that they are able to have a joyful character and not fall into the traps of bitterness it's because of Jesus. That's their objective reality. They are people of joy. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and are found in Christ. When all else shakes, our call to joy remains not because our strength is found in the things of this age, but because it is found in Christ Jesus and to be found in him. That because of Jesus, we are the people of joy. But joy is a confusing thing in our culture. Our culture is obsessed with pleasure and happiness. We live in a time and place where most pain can be dulled by medication or travel or entertainment and a litany of other things. We can try to replace pleasure and distraction for the true and deep and incredible joy that is found in Christ Jesus. And this is not meant to be a disdain in the created world. God made all things beautiful, but they were affected by sin, and he will make all things beautiful in their time. But one thing can never be true of this world, is that it could never truly satisfy our hearts and our longings. The created world can be enjoyed in its proper place, and really, for the Christian, it can be deeply enjoyed truly, because Christ is in his proper place. This age can never 
nor was it ever meant to satisfy. We were made to be a people of joy who rejoice in God and God alone. If that peace is missing, although we can seek joy elsewhere, it will never truly satisfy our hearts. The Old Testament speak of idols, and idols never fill. They never satisfy. And that is true with pleasure and distraction. Although we can aim to find satisfaction in those things, when obstacles of life pull up, how do we react? When sickness and loss of status and wealth and poverty and the general malaise that is a part of life on this side of the Jordan draw near, how quickly does our happiness dissipate? The call of the Christian is to have a character of joy because our joy is not found in any circumstance or fleeting thing. Our joy is not of this world, so this world cannot take it away. Our joy is in the Lord. We are found in him and in him alone. So even when those things which threaten to pull us into despair come, we are able to respond because our joy is in Christ. We are the rejoicing ones. The other temptation that can pull us, which Paul addresses, is that we can try to enjoy, ignore joy completely. We can be tempted as many philosophers in the East and the West to face life with a stiff upper lip, to deny that we are sad and simultaneously deny that we are happy or have joy, to be bitter and distant and think that godliness is the same thing as detachment. We can become cold and unapproachable and unattached completely from others. We in turn deny a part of our humanity which God calls us to joy and to enjoy. The Psalms hint at this when it says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. There is a true and deep and immovable joy, a joy that lasts through storms and hardship, the joyful character of a Christian, even through tears. We are not called to be completely detached, cold and distant. As we consider the Lord's, the Lord, our mind delights in him. Our hearts and our desires are for the Lord and we find him delightful. And in our actions, our cheerfulness points to the goodness of our God, to be a people of a deep delight and a people of joy. But you may hear this and think to yourself, I don't have joy. And what about when I don't have joy? And one pastor offered three possibilities. First, the call of the gospel is one of joy. Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room in the gospel of John tells them, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Perhaps, and it has to be said, that although you can know all these things logically, the fact of the matter is that you might not be a Christian. One of the aspects of Christianity is delight, and that delight is found primarily in God. If you have never delighted in the Lord in any way, the question must really be asked, do you believe the gospel? If you are unsure today, the call of our Lord is to repent and believe delight in him, come to experience the joy that only God can give, that deep and filling satisfaction in him and him alone. It is not a joy that the world gives, but can only be found in Christ. So if you don't feel joy, one of the options is or might be 
that you're not a Christian. But please, I don't want everybody to freak out. There are two other options. Okay, just, I just want to say that. Second, some might say, I am a Christian, and yet my life is not full of joy. We see in the scripture that holiness and joy are closely related. A Puritan, which you have to really quote if you're going to talk about joy. Like, you really got to quote the Puritans. I don't know why. Like, you wouldn't think, right? <laughs> but they are the ones that talk about joy the most. A Puritan put it like this. The idea that holiness requires a gloomy disposition is a tragic distortion of Scripture. On the contrary, Scripture asserts that those who cultivate holiness experience true joy. Unrepented sin and bitterness can rob you of joy. We see that in the Psalms when David cries out to the Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Are your actions full of duty where your heart is far from God? Is there something stuck that is rubbing you of the joy that we have in Christ? Paul again warns the Philippians of those actions that could lead them astray from the gospel of Christ and the joy that we have in the Lord. So, if we're tracking, if you don't have joy, it's possible that you're not a Christian or there's unrepented sin. I got to preach next week, so please don't get mad at me. But there's a third option. Perhaps you are a Christian and there's not a blatant disobedience that is stealing your joy. And you ask, why don't I feel joy? Do you feel tossed around by circumstance and chance? Do you struggle with temptations of counterfeit joys or the sorrows of difficult pressures? Be encouraged. This command reminds us because there are times of sadness in the Christian life. But because we are a people of joy, that sadness is not forever. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And we see that best in Jesus. When speaking to the disciples on the night he was betrayed, he says in the gospel of joy, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He is speaking of his cross and he's speaking of his resurrection. Later in that same chapter, he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Because we are a people of joy, our joy is always coming. We are the people of joy. There will be times of weeping, but the resurrection is coming, and we will see Jesus again. Sadness is not forever, and no one will take away our joy. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus Christ, to our Father. And we look to you, the only one who knows all of our lives, who knows our struggles, who knows our joys and our sorrows. 
Help us, Lord, to understand this truth that we are a people of joy, not because of anything we have within ourselves, but because of you and the work that you did on the cross. Help us, Lord, to worship you and to seek you, that as our minds think of you, that we delight in you, that our hearts would desire you and cherish you, and that our actions would be done cheerfully for your glory. Help us, Lord, to be a people of joy, because that is what you've called us to be. Help us to seek you and to know you, and as the world sees, that they would see that you are a good God and our Heavenly Father who takes care of us. Help those that may be feeling sorrowful now, whose joy may not be as reticent or as easily felt. Comfort them and encourage them, Lord, that they may see that weeping may last for the night, but our joy comes in the morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.